0: Hello everyone. welcome back to a brand new episode of the Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your Casual Criminalist. Also known as your host. I definitely don't want to imply that I'm some sort of competent criminalist. Indeed, I just read a script that Callum has provided. I don't even know what we're talking about today. It's going to be a bit of a surprise. <laughs> Callum decided not to include a title on this episode. I believe it could be about Bible John, who I believe is kind of the Scottish version... of of Jack the Ripper. Or that could be another episode we've got coming soon because I gave Callum a bunch of ideas and he gave me a bunch of scripts. And I, I suppose I should have done more preparation for this show, but well, here we are. Should we just jump into it today? Because. Open scene, opening scene, I suppose. A smoggy city along the banks of the River Clyde, one-half historic sandstone tenements on quiet leafy lanes, the other dilapidated high-rises scarred by the effects of economic decline. Welcome to Scotland, 1960s Glasgow to be specific, a city split between the glory of its shipbuilding past and the misery of its contemporary condition. I have been to Glasgow once when I was a young man, I think I must have been about 18 or 19, and I went there as part of a university club. and we stayed in the hotel for the club and then uh, for the club's activities and then I was there for one more day one more night until my train left to go home and I stayed in this youth hostel and it was the worst youth hostel that I think I've stayed in I've stayed in some pretty rough ones but this seemed to be more like a place where homeless people might live for a night and I you know I don't want to sound like I don't like homeless people but it was a bit of a weird experience and I remember I, I was just like what shall I do I didn't really have any money to go out for dinner or drinks or anything. So I just stayed in this hostel and watched that the, the movie Doom on my laptop. It was around the time Doom came out. So whenever that was. I was young. This one-time jewel of Imperial Britannia had lost its sheen after going through something of a rough patch following the Second World War. By the latter days of the mid-20th century, drugs, alcoholism and crime were rampant, sectarian gangs roaming the streets at night with knives and straight razors tucked into their waistbands. Because remember in the UK, we don't really have guns. I mean, there's some gun violence, but it's really, really minimal. There's a lot of knife crime though, because we might not shoot each other, but we sure will stab each other. Which I'd rather Like, I'd rather have knives than guns, but uh, I guess it's all bad. But aside from being one of the most... And also this hostel I stayed in, it felt, like, sketchy. I didn't really feel like I was in danger, but I'd have felt in danger if I'd have gone walking around outside in the kind of part of town it was in. Glasgow's... I don't know. I didn't see a very nice side of Glasgow, I suppose. But aside from being one of the most likely places to get headbutted in all of Europe a move charmingly nicknamed the Glasgow Kiss. <laughs> I didn't even know that. It was, st- it was, and still is, one of the best places to party to. This was the swinging 60s after all. Anyone who didn't fancy getting in a machete fight or developing a taste for heroin could instead pass their evenings in one of the many thriving dance halls. So what do you fancy doing tonight, Jeff? You wanna go uh, heroin, machete fight, dancing? Dancing sounds good. <laughs> Chief among them was the Barrowland Ballroom, a beacon of youth culture on the east side of the city centre. Its iconic neon sign shone technicolour light down upon revelers from all over Scotland, who came half for the music and half for the seedy reputation that the place had garnered over the years. Remember that scene from Star Wars in the dodgy alien cantina? Uh, I'll let you into a little secret, dear viewer. I've never seen, I've seen, I always say I've never seen Star Wars, but it's not quite true. I've seen two Star Wars. I saw one when I was a kid and they were rerunning the movies from the 60s or wherever, and they're flying through the woods on hover bikes. And then I saw the one that was released a few years ago um, with the ball that rolls around. I'm not really into it, but I'm a huge Star Trek nerd. I just don't like fantasy and Star Wars is fantasy. Let's not even get into that. But, look, 99% of people have probably seen Star Wars, so imagine that dodgy cantina that I myself cannot picture. Well, just imagine that, with slightly less comprehensible accents. And just, probably compared to aliens, right? I, I struggle to understand, like, very thick Scottish accents Takes some getting used to. And when the concerned parents of Scotland thought the Barris couldn't stoop any lower, this hub of boozing, dancing, fighting, and sleazing became the primary setting for one of the most shockingly violent stories to ever unfold on the streets of this troubled city. I'm talking, of course, about the murders of Bible John. Ah, it is Bible John. I'm glad I guessed it right. Otherwise, well… I mean, I already admitted to being fairly crap at my job, but uh, here we are anyway. Let's move on. The 22nd of February 1968. It was a Thursday evening. A prime night. For those who wanted to get a head start on the weekends, by heading out to town. Or, God, I I guess Callum has provided something that I'm supposed to read in a Scottish accent. Going up a dancing. Oh, I don't even know why I try. Please don't hate me, Scottish people. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to try accents anymore. Uh, oh, he's even provided me a uh, pronunciation guide. Gone up a dancing. All right, as the locals would say, if there are any Glaswegians listening, please excuse the terrible act. Thank you for apologising for me, Callum. I already did it. I don't read these ahead, by the way. Spoiler alert, absolutely nobody. On the south side of the city, a young nurse named Patricia Patricia Docker was getting ready to join them. The south side of Glasgow has always had a relatively rough reputation, so it's pretty fitting that Patricia's neighbourhood was literally called Battlefield, despite actually being one of the nicer parts. (laughs) Here she was, living on Langside Place with her mother and father, the Wilsons, who no doubt pestered her over whether she was going where she was going that night and with who. She told them she was off to the majestic ballroom, but in fact, she would never end up making it through those doors on that fateful evening. Not for any nefarious reasons, mind you. Oh, have some patience. We'll get to that. We sure will, casual criminalist. I was designing the thumbnails for some of the earlier episodes today, and I was like, is that enough blood splatter? Is that too much? No such thing as too much. More blood splatter. Because, as with, you know, casual criminals, there's gonna be some crimes, there's gonna be some murders. It was just because she actually ended up going to the Barrowlands for over 25 nights instead. This was probably a pretty common white lie among young Glaswegian women. Yamar and Dar were much less likely to let you go have fun in peace if they knew you were headed out to the most notorious single spot in the city, or rather a spot where people went to act like they were single, whether or not that was actually the case. This was actually Patricia's situation, although she was technically separated from her husband and divorce seemed like a foregone conclusion. She had recently returned to her Glasgow home after a five-year marriage had fallen apart. Her soon-to-be ex-husband, Alex, was a corporal in the RAF and father to their only son who shared his name. By 1968, little Alex was four years old and left in the care of his grandparents while mum went out on the town. Patricia doted on her wee boy but at only 25 years old herself, she needed a chance to go out and live her own life every now and again. As she put on her yellow mini dress, slung her grey duffel coat over her shoulders, and put on her lipstick and mascara, she would have imagined a very different night than the one which was about to unfold. A good laugh, a few drinks, maybe a handsome young guy to dance with. And as a hard-working single mother, she was due all of that, and more. And so, after giving her wee boy a kiss goodnight, she stepped out into the chilly, late winter air and made her way towards the center of town. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, The next time any of her family saw Patricia was at the city morgue. Oh, casual cribbage, we do get morbid quickly, don't we? Laid out on a slab for identification. That Friday morning, a local of Battlefields named Maurice Goodman had walked over to his garage down a lane less than a minute from the Wilsons' house to find the poor woman naked and dead in the entranceway. The officers who responded to Goodman's 999 call, DS Johnson and DS McDonald, arrived just after 8 am. McDonald later recounted there had been a heavy frost that night. We stopped the car at the Overdale Street, end of the lane. The body was lying with her head towards us. She was completely naked, and there was no sign of her clothing. She was lying on her back with her head turned to the right. At this stage, there was little to go on. All the officers could do was cross their fingers and hope for a report of a suspicious suspicious person running through the city holding a bundle of women's clothes. Yeah, I mean, detecting crime. This was the 1960s. I guess today they'd be doing, you know, DNA swabs. Well, they could have fingerprinted her and... Surely there's some like trace evidence on her body they could definitely look into rather than be just like, yeah, let's go back to the uh, I'm not gonna do Scottish accents again. Let's go back to the uh, police station. <laughs> I couldn't think of that word for a second. Police station and uh, have a cup of tea and hope that that something falls into our lap <laughs> or or do some policing, guys. After a short while, the forensic pathologist arrived on the scene. Okay, good, good. I mean, yeah, I guess. I guess that isn't really their job, but they could do some uh, do some policing. tucking onto the cordon tape and joining the two inspectors. Their icy breaths merging in the air above the body quickly. Dr. Imri ascertained that Patricia had been dead for at least a few hours and that her neck showed signs of strangulation, possibly by a belt due to the patterns of friction marks left on the skin. To make matters worse, it seemed seemed as if she was beaten before being murdered and there were signs of sexual assault. The post-mortem later confirmed all of this, as well as a minor circumstantial detail, the significance of which would only become apparent many months later. Patricia. Had died on her period. Yeah, that doesn't seem important at all. So I'm glad Callum threw in like this is going to become relevant. I am very curious as to why. It could be some like the guys called Bible John. The Bible is really weird. So there could be something about women on their periods in there. I'm sure there is. If the Bible doesn't mention women on their periods multiple times, well, I would be shocked. I'm not super familiar with the Bible if you couldn't tell. Um so I guess there's gonna be some sort of weird religion thing going on there. Just my guess? We're going to find out. When the ambulance had come to transport poor Pat to the mortuary, one of the EMTs on board was able to throw the investigators a bone. They recognized the victim. She had worked as a nurse at Meanskirk Hospital, where they could find out her name, meaning they were able to make the call to her family on Saturday. The next step was for detectives to interview the Wilsons. They had told police that their daughter had been seen wearing a brown handbag, a wristwatch and a ring given to her by her grandmother, all of which were now missing. Where had their daughter been going that evening? The detective asks. Well, she was headed up to the Majestic, the ballroom up on Hope Street. And with that, the initial investigation was pretty much screwed. The detectives went about interviewing the doorman and staff at the complete wrong place, which as you could probably guess, didn't yield any case-breaking bombshells. So the trail went cold and the murder of this young mother faded into obscurity, a minor story in the pages of newspapers filled with a litany of other violent tales. I have to say, I mean… I know it's easy to go and say like, oh, 2020 hindsight and all that and everything's fine. You know, everything's easier when you look back on it. But if I was those detectives, I would feel that if I had hit such a dead end when I'd got to that majestic ballroom, I'd be like, "Or oh, we could go check out the one <laughs> other DS. We could go check out the one that all the kids actually go to rather than the one they tell their parents they're going to, especially if they ended up murdered after being sexually assaulted. We could try. Now We've briefly talked about the crime that blighted Glasgow at this time, but perhaps this is a good time to take a closer look. Sure, the ballrooms had a well-deserved reputation for young lads fighting over pretty girls and hands creeping up skirts in the corners, but at the end of the day, that would all probably seem pretty tame compared to what goes on in nightclubs nowadays. (laughs) The real danger was on the street. Yeah, and they called them ballrooms. Ballrooms to me, I imagine people in big dresses and men in tails and boat-eyes dancing around with their their hands up in the air, you know, like, Like, whereas nightclubs today, it's like, I imagine, you know, (laughs) cocaine. Uh, The real danger was on the streets. This was the domain of the Neds, a term which was popularized around the same time as our story, used to refer to small-time football hooligans and street gang members. As well as being divided along geographical boundaries, these gangs were also divided by religion. With a huge influx of Irish immigrants throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, Glasgow had a much larger Catholic population than most cities in the historically Protestant UK. If you're unfamiliar with the significance uh, of Protestant and Catholics, all you need to know is that there's a bloody history between the two spanning centuries in glasgow this primarily manifests in football these the so-called old firm teams of celtic the catholic team and rangers the protestants wow it's like two things i could not care about any less religion and football combined (laughs) i would be definitely sitting at the sidelines being like i'm not interested in and gang violence i want no part of gang violence football or religion Be like i am well out Even today, diehard Protestants march through the streets celebrating battles from centuries ago, and hardline Catholics sing IRA anthems at Celtic games, oh my. But all of that is relatively tame compared to the violence of the 1960s Neds, who were quite happy to pull a blade on anyone who wasn't from the right religion, gang, or even just housing estate. These disaffected youths were even known to hide some heavy-duty weapons like hammers and hatchets in the linings of their jackets. In 1965 alone, there were over 850 arrests for carrying offensive weapons like these. Okay, so I know to our American listeners who have probably seen people walking around Walmart with AR-15s, a few axes and knives might sound like child's play. Yeah, it totally is. I've been to America a bunch of times, and I've been to a Walmart. I went to a Walmart once, and I was just like walking around, getting some groceries. It's like, oh, a machete. For three dollars. Okay. And then there's a whole gun section for, like, hunting. And it's like, okay, this is so weird. As a British person, I'm sure Americans will like Simon, of course. I buy an AR-15 when I get my eggs. What are you talking about? It's very normal. But when you're dealing with dozens of slashings, cracked skulls, and chopped fingertips every week, it's kind of a big deal. Why are they chopping the fingertips? That's weird. I mean, Glasgow had a murder rate more than twice as high as London. Bloody hell! For much of the latter 20th century, was once dubbed the murder capital of Europe. (laughs) That's not a good one. It's like there's this big thing in Europe. You have the European Capital of Culture, which every year a city is chosen. It's kind of a big deal, and they make the city all nice and like they talk about the tourist attractions. It's like European Capital of Culture. It's a little bit different to the murder capital of Europe. Yeah. Although I feel maybe Glasgow's been the European Capital for culture at some point times have changed but i don't know i went there 10 years ago and it's still kind of nasty (laughs) sorry everybody from glasgow i went to edinburgh that was really nice is there a rivalry between glasgow and edinburgh i don't even know i feel like in in the uk i don't know like if you're from london what do you feel about people from manchester you definitely feel they're from the north but i don't think there's a big like angry rivalry As you can imagine in this sort of climate, the body of a young woman turning up in a garage entryway wasn't the biggest shock in the world. Glasgow is a much nicer place these days, but I do have one safe travel tip if you're planning on visiting. If someone in the street asks you your favourite football team, they are not trying to be your friend. And whatever you do, do not say Rangers or Celtic. That's a coin toss that could end in disaster. I'd be like, I don't even like football, mate. What are you talking about? (laughs) This is one thing, like, people... I felt it happen more when I was a kid, but... You know when you meet someone and they ask you, oh, you know, oh, how are you? Nice to meet you. What do you do? In the UK, I feel like, oh, nice to meet you. What do you do? What football team do you support? And I was always like, nobody. I don't care. And then I just eventually chose one at random just so I could answer the question and not seem like a weirdo because, you know, <laughs> as a teenager, you just want to fit in. Be like, yeah, yeah, no, I definitely support Arsenal. They're the best. They, they kick that ball Great. The safe move is to tell them you're a Wraith Rovers fan and go on your way. Never heard of the Wraith Rovers? It doesn't matter. Nobody's ever been stabbed over the Wraith Rovers either. Are they just a made-up team, Callum? I don't even know. Anyway, now you have a better idea of the setting for your ver- of our very own real-life tartan noir drama. The lead detectives started by barking up the wrong tree, only figuring out that the victim went to the Barrowlands after their initial Public appeal went out, and it looks like the case was set to go as cold as the frost on that February morning in Battlesfield. So, I guess there's nothing for it. Rather than worrying ourselves, how about we go for a drink? It's Friday, August the 15th, 1969. We paid our four-shilling entry fee, and we're stepping into the barrenance. The cavernous smoky room is buzzing with activity, hundreds of dancers whirling around under the disco balls or the sound of the band. The lucky ones, cobbled up along the sides. That's where we're standing now, backs to the wall. But we're not coupled up. Instead, we're just clutching our drinks to our chest and trying to buck up the courage to ask someone to dance. This feels like uni- It does, it does. (laughs) This feels like uni all over again. I'd say it more feels like school dances. Those were, you know, with the boys on one side, the girls on the other. At uni, I felt everything was just made a lot easier by by alcohol being present. (laughs) So we scan around, looking for a likely candidate, trying to avoid eye contact with anyone looking for a fight. It'd help if we could head out on our own to the dance floor, but I have absolutely zero idea how to foxtrot. Do you? Didn't think so. Callum, we're really, like, reeling people in today. Look at this story we're telling, and I'm just breaking the rhythm. So the final few songs roll around, and we're still glued to the wall, starting to feel like the kids who get picked last for last for dodgeball. Totally, I was that kid. Or, oh, like, football. I, I feel like I'm talking way too much about football this episode, but I was definitely the last person to be picked. Not because, I mean, partly because I had no skill whatsoever, but I'd also just that I had no interest in getting involved. <laughs> be like, go for it, Simon. I'd be like, no, I'm good. I definitely want to play defense, and I'm not going to do a very good job of it. Let's be honest. It's then that we spot a woman standing nearby, fresh off the dance floor. She's pretty, looks looks in her late 20s, early 30s, dressed in white with wavy brown hair down to her shoulders. She's only standing alone for a few seconds before a guy comes to join her. A tall guy, about six foot, dressed in a blue three-piece suit with a strong Glasgow accent. Over the next few minutes, we hear a few snippets of their conversation in the breaks between songs. They're chatting about the music, the dancing their lives but one thing stands out as strange the guy likes to slip bible quotes into the chat every now and then that's always the charmer (laughs) we shoot each other a look bible bashing isn't exactly the best pickup strategy try next time you're on tinder you'll see (laughs) yeah it's, it's not gonna go down well so we start paying more attention to the two of them we're waiting for this nightclub preacher's patter to go down like a lead balloon but wait a minute it's look- it looks like it's worked. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're good lucky you can get away with a lot. <laughs> They're leaning together now, heading to the cloakroom to collect their coats. Curveball. So that's, where I can- <laughs> so that's where I went wrong in my uni days. Not enough fire and brimstone in my pickup lines. I should have studied my Old Testament. <laughs> I don't know about that, Callum. Anyway, I think it's about time we called it a night. You win some, you lose some. In this scenario, we would have been one of quite a few witnesses who woke up a few days later to see this pretty young woman from the Barrowland Ballroom plastered on the front page of the papers. Her name was Jemima Macdonald, Glasgow native and single mother of three, of three, and she was dead. Much like Patricia Docker 18 months prior, she had left her children with her family before heading out for a night to herself. Jemima's sister, Margaret, was the one trusted to look after her wanes. That's Glaswegian for kids, by the way. Wow, you learn something new every day. There we go. When her sister failed to come home on Saturday morning, Margaret was concerned, but she still expected Jemima to turn up with a wild story sometime later that day. But then Sunday came, then Monday, and still no sign of her. Some ominous rumors had begun to, this is like, I get the anxiety that a parent might have. I remember, you know, it wasn't 10 years ago, 15 years ago that I was a young kid going out and be like, yeah, 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 I'm gonna go out and you know, drink too much, party with my friends, see them the next day. And it would be like, yeah, I, I, and I was a boy. I, and I have a daughter who's very young, but I'd be like, yeah, no, I get that. That, that would make me pretty anxious. And I'd be like, yeah. And I remember my mom, my stepmom, saying like, yeah, no, she, she, she was saying like, yeah, get anxious when you guys are out. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Don't, don't worry. Now I get it. Totally hundred percent get it. Some ominous rumours had begun drifting around the housing estate that weekend. Local boys were heard trading tales of a body in an abandoned tenement. Don't trade tales, guys, call the police. With three kids in a house crying for their mother, these rumors only fueled Margaret's anxiety, so much so that on Monday morning, she went to investigate herself. Walking through why didn't what is wrong with you? Call the police! Walking through the hallway of the derelict old building, treading over smashed glass and cigarette butts, she found the exact thing she had been dreading. Her sister lay in the middle of one of the rooms, just another discarded thing in this barren and abandoned place. Jemai was clearly dead, heavily bruised, still clothed, with her stockings thrown down beside her. The medical examiner discovered that one of them had been used to strangle her to death after a horrible ordeal of beatings and rape. She was just 32 years old. All of this begs the question, why the hell didn't those kids tell an adult? It took a full 30 hours to get the police on the scene thanks to those young'uns' laissez-faire attitude towards corpses. Yeah, why is wrong with you? If you think that video games are to blame for desensitizing the youth to violence, remember that it would be another three years before the release of Pong. That which wasn't violent at all. Despite the delay, the police were actually able to gather quite a significant amount of evidence from the scene, including some DNA from the stockings. I didn't even realize, could they do DNA back in the day like this? I didn't even realize. I thought, I knew they did some, like, blood type matching and stuff, which was, like, you know, circumstantial. But, oh, that's cool. I mean, I guess you can gather the DNA and they'd figure maybe this will be useful later anyway on top of that since they knew exactly where jemima had been on the night of her murder they were able to collect a healthy amount of eyewitness reports which placed her in the company of our silver-tongued bible lover from before by the way i don't know i'm guessing because it's referred to like as you know scotland's jack the ripper i don't think we i don't think bible john ever got caught i'm not 100 sure and i know callum likes to leave it to the end and he doesn't like to reveal up front whether this person got caught, so even if they know the name, they'll often just use their, like, you know, Jack the Ripper instead of the actual person's name. I don't think he's ever got caught, which is, well, obviously already terrible, but it's going to get worse. Got a sick script in front of me. From the descriptions, a photo fit was produced with the image of the killer. He was slim-faced, a smirking young man, with short reddish-brown hair combed neatly to the right. A very public manhunt ensued, with police releasing the image of their suspect to newspapers for the first time in Scottish history. Whether this was a brilliant idea or a fatal misstep is up for debate, because this was the first step in turning the story of a tragic murder into a full-on national nightmare. Okay, I don't know what error they've made, but to me it seems like a very, that seems like a good idea to release the image to the police, so hopefully someone can identify him and he can get caught. Maybe I'm missing something. What could possibly go wrong with that? He sees it, he gets angry, and he kills more people. He's gonna kill more people anyway, though. Let's see. But despite all of that, no significant progress was made in catching the killer. The minor media frenzy produced no real leads, and the police resorted to staking out the Barrowlands with a crack team of undercover dance cops instead. And before you even ask, I've already trademarked the name Undercover Dance Cops for my upcoming screenplay. (laughs) So back off. It sounds like uh, it would be like 21 Jump Street. It must have been a pretty strange beat, just dancing the night away and waiting for some guy to come chat you up with his best-knower impression. But it was a short-lived thing at any rate. I don't know if you realize, but when undercover cops start roaming around a notoriously seedy bar famous for fights and one-night stands, it tends to kill the vibe, so owners started demanding an end to it. While some of their colleagues were dancing the night away, however, the less fortunate investigators at Glasgow City Police had begun to draw some tentative connections between this case and a similar one from a year before. I'm going to guess it's the one that we covered at the beginning of the episode today. One key detail suggested a pivot from a simple murder investigation to a potential serial killing with a recurring motive. Jemima had been on a period at the time. That is a bizarre motive, and again, Bible has something to do with this. It's definitely got something to do with the Bible. Probably the Old Testament, because the Old Testament's scary and weird. The Old Testament's like angry God. Eighteen months apart, two married women attended the same dance hall, both of them on their period, both... How do you... He just, are you on your period? But she's like, how do you know? Uh, Both found dead in quiet corners of the city beaten and strangled, with their handbags missing. The theory that these two crimes might have been connected held a small place on the lower corner of the investigative pinboard, but still considered tentative at best. But in October of 1969, one final tragic event would blow that doubt right out of the water and cement the killer's place in infamy for decades to come. I'm going to guess that that event is someone else is getting horribly murdered. On October the thirty first, nineteen sixty nine, at around nine pm, oh no, it's going to be two people, two sisters entered the traders' tavern on Kent Street. In the market area, at the back of the Barrel and ballroom, Jean, uh, Jenny uh, Langford was the older sister of the two, wearing a dark green coat with a shirt and blouse. Her little sister, 29-year-old Helen Parter, sat across from her in a short-sleeved back dress. Normally, a pair of women dressed up to the nines would be an unusual sight in the rundown old man's pub, but on a Friday night like this, there are always a few scattered around the place, loading up on as much alcohol as possible before closing time, while waiting for the ballroom to heat up. Ah, yeah, pre-drinking. We're definitely that because it's expensive to drink in nightclubs so at university we'd uh, we'd definitely well we'd drink at home first because it's cheapest to drink at home then we'd go to the pub for a couple and then we'd go to the nightclub later and you'd probably only need one drink because you're probably quite sloshed by the time you get there That's exactly what the sisters sat doing now while chatting about their lives and the men in them. Earlier that day, Helen had got into a pretty fierce argument with her husband, a military man on leave from his post in Germany. He wasn't too happy about Helen going out on the town with her sister while he was left to look after their two kids. If there's one thing you should know about Glaswegian women, it's that they can be strong-willed. So she got her way in the end. As 10 o'clock crept up, the barman rang the bell for last orders. Young dancers and scowling market traders alike finished their drinks then filtered out into the night air. It was a short walk to the barracks where the women made their way from the queue to cloakroom to dance floor. As they did so, they passed a dire omen posted on the notice board in the hallway alongside flyers and band listings. A police sketch of a certain slim-faced man Inside the main hall, the familiar energy was radiating off the dance floor, and the girls were keen to get stuck in. Jenny was the first to land a dance partner, John from Castle Milk on the south side. He wasn't exactly the best looking guy in the world, but he was a good enough talker and a dancer to win her over until closing time. Helen watched her sister disappear into the crowd, but was only left on her own for a few minutes before she was approached herself. Her lad was also called John, because apparently, that was the only name allowed for Glasgow men born in the 1940s. We'll call them Castle Milk John and Handsome John for simplicity. I'll let you guess which one is secretly the psychopath. It's, oh, I know can't saying like the, the, the handsome guy is the psychopath because, you know, I feel like Ed Bundy is the like typical, like, okay, good looking guy who is also a total psycho. And then there's lots of movies like American Psycho where the psychopath is good looking, like Christian Bale or whatever. But I, I reckon like, most psychopaths are not good-looking, right? That, in, in reality, they're, they're, they're probably really weird. Uh, especially, especially like the murdering ones. Maybe they're like psychopaths who, eh, I don't think there's a correlation, essentially, is what I'm saying. When the song stopped, the two sisters met at the side and introduced their partners. Handsome John was incredibly well turned out. He wore a well-ironed suit and shirt with nicely combed hair. This wasn't your usual barrelland's bachelor by any means. Jenny took a long hard look at this strange young man by her sister's side, good enough that she would be able to describe his face in vivid detail over and over in the days, months, and years to come. Have you guessed which John is the murderer yet? Handsome John is Bible John. Yes, he is. Good. I'm glad... <laughs> Even Callum knows we get it. But if you have to ask, why hadn't anyone guessed? I mean, his face was literally hanging on a wanted poster in the hallway, for Christ's sake. Well, yes and no, it wasn't really his face, not the face of the man who stood in front of Jenny now. The photo fit hadn't done his good looks and clean complexion justice. His hair was much more red than previously described, and at any rate, the printouts were in black and white. He must have stood at five foot ten tall because his mouth was at eye level, revealing two overlapping front teeth whenever he spoke. Closing time rolled around and the group jostled towards the exit, stopping at the cigarette machine on the way. Jenny put her money in to buy a pack, but the machine jammed up, swallowing her cash. This was the first crack in the calm demeanor of handsome John. The previously soft-spoken and refined guy snapped. He made a show of shouting for a manager and laying into the staff with an over-the-top rage. It's probably not a good look. (laughs) Also, probably had a bit too much to drink. Or maybe just a psycho. At this point, Castle John decided it had enough. This was not a battle he had any interest in fighting. While the others went off to queue for a taxi, he said his goodbyes and caught the last bus home never to be heard from again. Meanwhile, Handsome John was ranting about how his father called Dancil's dens of iniquity, a phrase which was incredibly old-fashioned even back in the 1960s. Scare a bit cloat, he's a bit of a Bible lover, isn't he? You can already tell. With the, good, with the good vibes starting to sour, the two sisters stepped into the taxi while this suave young guy held the door, then followed them inside. The scene we've just witnessed was the exact nightmare imagined by the sister's mother, also called Jean, before they went out into the night. She had reminded them about the ballroom killings, but Helen had just comforted her mum with jokes. Really, who'd try to do anything with her with sharp nails like these? A Glasgow girl through and through, she had a fighting spirit and wasn't afraid of anyone. The evidence at the scene confirmed as much. Grass stains on the soles of her feet, cracked nails, tracks in the dirt on a railway embankment from an attempted escape a deep bite mark on her thigh. Helen had fought to the very end, but ultimately wasn't able to make it to safety. The police arrived on the scene on the 1st of November to find her partially clothed, laying next to a drainpipe at the end of the garden of a Scotstown flat. She had been raped, beaten, and strangled. Just like the other victims, her handbag was missing, and she was found to be on her period at the time of the attack. The detectives informed the family and spoke to a distraught Jenny the same day. Despite her raw grief, she was able to recount everything about the previous night, down to the finest detail. This gave them an invaluable foothold in their investigation. They knew what the killer looked like, how he spoke. They even knew the color and pattern of his tie. She told investigators about everything which had happened during the tense taxi ride home. After Johnny Boy had calmed down about the cigarette machine, he still didn't seem quite right. The two women tried to engage him in conversation, but he was snappy and short. He insisted on heading to Jenny's house first to drop her off. In the 20 minutes it took to get there, Jenny and Helen tried all sorts of avenues to warm up the atmosphere. All they could get out of their new companion were a few short remarks about how his cousin had recently scored a hole-in-one at golf, how he was neither a Celtic nor a Rangers man but an agnostic, a word which was alien and intimidating at the time, how he was teetotal and prayed rather than drank at New Year, how he detested married women who went to ballrooms, and all of that with a smattering of Old Testament judgment for flavor. Perhaps strangest of all was when Jenny asked for a cigarette, John reached into his pocket and grudgingly produced a half-finished pack of embassies, which he had been reluctant to share with them earlier on. At this point, she was sick of this self-righteous, cigarette-hoarding Bible basher, and glad to hop out of the taxi as soon as they got near the home. Now, all of these juicy details are the stuff policemen's dreams are made of. Jenny's statement really hammered home the religious angle, which until now had been a minor footnote of seemingly little consequence. Crucially, they were now convinced, without a doubt, they were dealing with a full-fledged serial killer. Yeah, twice is a coincidence, three, it's like, alright, something's up. Under the guidance of John Betty, one of Glasgow's top detectives at the time, Jenny actively joins the hunt for the man who killed her sister. The police produced a new photo fit for the killer, this time made up of one woman's detailed testimony rather than a patchwork assembled from dozens of half remembered accounts. But there's also another kind of person who thrives on this kind of vivid, violent detail journalists. The press went wild for the story of the silver-tongued killer and his freshly reworked face was on the front of every paper in Scotland. One major tabloid ran with the headline, The Dance Hall Don Juan with Murder on His Mind. That is a very long headline, which is far catchier than it had any right being. A pretty good line for Bible John the Musical, if anyone is ever tasteless enough to write it. Let's hope not. Although I believe they made an American Psycho musical, which is… uh. I mean at least that's not based on a real story but that's a uh, yeah in- interesting choice all the details began to emerge the entire city of glasgow let out a collective gasp of terror parents demanded their daughters stay home past sunset thousands of concerned citizens rang the police stations claiming their neighbors or workmates fit the description it was the kind of all pervading irrational fear that you can surely only understand If you've lived through this kind of thing before. And you'll probably know already as a fan of true crime. The media don't exactly go out of their way to calm down this kind of hysteria. Yeah, of course not. (laughs) They're going to sell way more papers if you're scared. Like during COVID, I've spent way more time. Like I'm not even into the news. I don't read a lot of news. And it's like during COVID, it's like, I'll look at the news at least once a day. Just to see what's going on. Like, is everything all right? Well, obviously not. But it's, uh, it's different. And it's. Obviously, good for the news websites. It's their bread and butter, after all. Here, they had a ready-made sensation with the kind of idiosyncratic details that really capture the imagination. So, the journalists of Scotland ran with the story. They invented a nickname, which virtually everybody in the country will recognise even to this day. So, what was it? The Bible-bashing ballroom bastard, Satan strangler, the demon of dancehall. Well, actually, the tabloids were a little more tasteful in those days, so they went with the comparatively restrained moniker. Bible John. I guess they were tasteful because, uh, what's his face? Rupert Murdoch hadn't arrived on the scene yet. (laughs) Oh Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and Callum leaves me a note here. If you'd prefer to omit all swearing, change it to the ballroom Bible basher. And it's like, no, it's okay. We could say bastards. Before we go any further, it's worth saying a word about the holy aspect of this case. This was what would eventually capture the terrified imagination of this religiously charged volatile secretarian city. After all, the idea of a violent misogynist named John justifying himself with the Bible was nothing new, especially in Scotland. This is the homeland of John Knox, the Protestant reformist who founded the Church of Scotland about 500 years ago. He wrote a work titled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Although it sounds like the title of a pinned post on an incel internet forum, (laughs) this was actually a deeply prejudiced theological book arguing against female monarchs. Scotland produced another John of questionable character around the same time, John Calvin. Another preacher of the Reformation, Calvin was not a fan of criticism. One of of his peers named Jacques Gruet accused him of hypocrisy, Johnny Boy is said to have had him tortured and executed, and his house burned down, just for good measure, I guess. I'm just realizing I know really very little about the history of Scotland it's quite embarrassing I'm like what what happens with who the Church of Scotland's it is I, I I guess I could Make some videos about this and learn something. Even as Roman Catholic hating buddies weren't completely safe from this treatment as the Spaniard Michael Servetus found out when he was tried for heresy and then burned alive oh, the good old days. The court decreed that fresh green wood would be used to draw the whole affair out as long as possible an agonizing 30 minutes in all. I I can't remember where I heard this, but I heard that, you know, if you're being burned to stake, you know, burned at the stake, here's uh, a pro tip. Apparently, well, alive, apparently it's a good idea to take deep breaths. Because then you'll die of uh, smoke poisoning, smoke inhalation, whatever it's called, before the flames get to you, which uh, I imagine is preferable. So what I'm saying is if you're a sadistic guy named John in Scotland who wants to commit some faith-infused misogyny and murder, you weren't short of role models. The Faith has quite a patchy history there, dating back to long before the gang wars of Neds or the red cards of old firm derbies. Criminal profilers believe Bible John had appointed himself as a religiously justified judge above the basic worldly law. According to his twisted sense of morality, he was dishing out well-deserved punishments to the depraved and dirty of the world. To him, this meant adulterers and women on their periods. He was a total psycho after all. Yeah, does the Bible have some problem with women on their periods? I feel there's that guy who tried living by… he lived by the rules of the Bible for like a whole year or something crazy. And one of the weird rules… What's that guy's name? He's like a journalist. It's a good book, and one of the rules was he couldn't sit down on a chair after a woman on her period had sat on the chair. It was one of these really strict. So obviously, like the Bible's got some hang-ups about periods, apparently. (laughs) Which and so does Bible John. Which leads us to one question which could have potentially cut the pool of suspects in half. Which side of the sectarian divide did Bible John fall on exactly? Well, When asked about his favorite football team in a taxi, he claims that he was neither Catholic nor Protestant. A shame as Glasgow was so divided into sectarian boroughs that this information could have really targeted the search. Regardless, things still seem to be going well. With all of the eyes of Glasgow peeled for a sight of this mysterious murderer. The police were optimistic. There was a solid chance he would be spotted the moment he set foot outside of wherever he was holed up, recovering from his wounds. Helen had given him a fair few for his trouble, most significantly a deep gash underneath one of his eyes, which was spotted as he fled the area on a bus. A 100 detectives were assigned to the case, with 50,000 statements collected through witnesses and call-ins, and a total of 1,000 potential suspects were found. Hoping that one of the minute little physical details would be the key to it all, the police interviewed hundreds of barbers, dentists, and tailors, hoping that one of them would be able to give them a name. Meanwhile, the crack team of Detective Betty and Wee Jenny carried out over 300 identity parades. He would first check the teeth, after which she would take a good look at the men and score their likelihood out of 100. But she never got the same feeling of repulsive recognition as when she saw the sketch that the police artist had made from her description. As the days and weeks went by, investigators failed to identify any highly likely culprits. There were too many half-baked leads to handle. Officers even took to drafting in psychics and spiritualists in an attempt to whittle down the possibilities. After all, the filing cabinets had burst apart and normal admin procedure had become powerless to keep up. Yeah, perfect. Let's bring in the psychics. (laughs) That'll solve the problem, as they have done so many times in the past. Not really. Can you tell that I'm a massive skeptic? As it looked like all of this hype might fizzle out without a conclusive arrest, the police caught a major break. A man who bore a striking resemblance to the police sketch had just gotten into a shouting match with a young woman at the Barrowlands. Jackpot. The idiot had returned to the scene of his crimes. I get the feeling this is not what's happened. Officers arrived to investigate and question the man outside. They compared the photo and description with the individual in front of them. Red hair, check, well put together, check, slim face, check. Everything seemed to match up, so they cuffed him and threw him back in the back of the police wagon. Right? Wait, wait, hang on a minute, one of the policemen presumably said, this man is innocent. Well, how so? His partner must have asked. The teeth, the teeth are all wrong. It clearly says overlapping front teeth. This guys are as straight as a Hollywood film star's, it can't be him. I feel like if you want to change your appearance, and one of your notable things are your teeth, you might consider getting your teeth changed, it's not impossible. Oh yeah, you're totally right. The teeth don't match. So there's literally no way this could be the culprit despite the fact that he otherwise totally looks like him and was screaming at a woman like a maniac. Sorry to trouble you, sir. You're free to go. (laughs) At this point, Bible John, if it really was him, must have immediately stopped sweating and tried his hardest to contain his amazement. The records don't state what happened to the officers. When the news of this close call reached the Stratklyth police precinct, it reminded one officer of a similar individual he had arrested several months before for getting into a fistfight outside the ballroom. The man had given a fake name and address at first before changing them later. The officers had driven him to the hospital to get stitches in his head, where again he tried to use his fake name, then escaped out of a window into the night. Despite potentially coming, painfully, agonizingly close to capture, it seemed Bible John was done committing fatal indiscretions. Amid a continuing storm of hearsay which overwhelmed the investigators, the trail went cold once again. Over the following year, their gigantic list of names was boiled down to nothing. With that, Bible John became almost an urban legend. Yeah, dude, if you were that close to getting caught, are murderers like addicted to murder? Like serial killers? Are they addicted to murder? I guess they have to do it, right? I mean, I'm basing this just on people we've covered on this podcast and watching Dexter. Like, they have to, right? And this guy, he's just going to disappear. I get the feeling he's coming back. Also, what's clear me in? There's maybe five pages of the script left. With that, Bible John became almost an urban legend, a myth haunting an entire generation of partygoers, which parents would recount to bring their daughters home early from nightclubs. These same stories were passed down the generations as a warning, a murderous ghost which lingered in the imaginations of every Scottish parent who ever watched their child walk out the door to their first night on the town. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Oh. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of today's episode. (laughs) It's a weighty script. Caleb says, no, I'm only joking. I wouldn't leave you without a little closure. The story haunted not only the popular imagination, but also the entire criminal justice apparatus of Scotland, which found its eye turned back towards the case time and time again in the following decades. That's it? He just stops killing? Or, I mean, maybe you go somewhere else to kill, or maybe he changes how he does it, but wow. The hopes of a tidy resolution dwindled thinner and thinner until it seemed like a pipe dream. It would be another 14 years until any substantial lead would come along, which happened in the form of a phone call in 1983. The man on the line claimed that he'd grown up with Bible John in an area of Glasgow called Cranhill. The two had spent plenty of nights down in the barracks in the 1960s, and he was convinced that his friend was the infamous Strangler himself. Police tracked down the individual to the Netherlands, but unfortunately, they found nothing conclusively linking him to the murders. That means that it was either an embarrassing misunderstanding or a pretty intense prank. The next time you need a good laugh, just call up the police and tell your mate. Tell them your mate is the Zodiac Killer. No, actually, don't do that. It's highly illegal. Yes, don't do that. It's not a good idea. You would go- That's got to be an imprisonable offence, right? Like to send the police on a wild goose chase, the amount of money they must waste. And also, you're kind of setting someone up for maybe a crime. The second time the investigation gathered ahead of steam was another 13 years later in 1996. There had always been a suspicion that Bible John might be a military man who killed at intervals whenever he returned home to Glasgow on leave. That's just one reason why ex Scots Guard soldier John McInnes was of interest to police. Years ago, he had admitted to being at the Barrowlands on the night of the third murder, after all. But they had trouble getting a confession out of him in 1996, though. He had been dead for 16 years after committing suicide in 1980. In lieu of words, the police took DNA samples from the remains using techniques not available in the 1960s. On a frosty February morning, not unlike the one on which the first John victim was found, they dug into the frozen earth with pneumatic drills, and first they removed the body of McInnes' mother, who was buried above him, then exhumed the man himself. The small sample of dna from the tights collected way back in the 1960s and frozen for posterity was compared to the new sample from his body police were so sure that they would finally got their guy but the evidence had deteriorated and the results were inconclusive mcginnis was ultimately cleared due to a lack of evidence now i've teased you with a few dead ends but the next one is legit i promise so just stick with me but i mean mcginnis is only set free or set free i mean he killed himself many many years before but he's only been discounted as a as a suspect because the dna had degraded it sounds you know there's there's a lot of of uh not substantial uh circumstantial evidence there in 2006 glasgow was shaken by another terrible crime one which sounds like something out of a dan brown book 23-year-old student Angelica Clark was staying in a residence attached to the St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church in the Anderson area of the city. Originally from Poland, she worked as a cleaner at the church to help fund her studies. After going missing for several days, her body was found on the 29th of September concealed beneath the concealed beneath the floor of the church. She had been badly beaten, manically stabbed, and raped. The last person to have seen her alive was the handyman of the church, a 60-year-old man named Pat McLaughlin, who was now missing. His face was circulated on national TV, which is when investigators discovered that that wasn't real- his real name at all. He was actually Peter Tobin, a registered sex offender from Glasgow who had previously spent over a decade in prison for the violent rape of two sisters. By moving home, he had managed to drop off the police radar. At the end of 2005, they managed to track him down at a hospital in London where he was admitted under another false name. I, I feel like shouldn't getting a fake identity be harder than this? I mean, how do you go under a false name for so long? Surely so at some point, you know, you're getting a job. Someone's going to ask for some ID of some kind, <laughs> even if you're just working at a church or like if you want to get a bank account or do you any of this like normal life stuff. You need ID. Just... Okay. Um, I mean, maybe it's not as hard as I think. I could just disappear, change my name. Yeah, what's your name? John. Now, just John. Smith. (laughs) Now, even if you don't know or remember his story, there's a chance the name Peter Tobin still sends a shiver down your spine. This is another one of the most recognizable names in the UK serial killer lineup. As uh, I'm thinking, yeah, this name is familiar to me. As morbidly iconic as Ted Bundy in these parts. And yes, I said serial killer, because this wasn't the first body which Tobin had buried, far from it. A search of his past homes revealed the missing bodies of a 15-year-old and 18-year-old buried in his garden in Margate. Oh, that's near where I'm from where I'm from. That's way down south. He was convicted of all of these murders and is currently serving the maximum sentence possible in the UK at Sorton Prison in Edinburgh. His fellow inmates have claimed that Tobin boasted of killing a total of 48 victims over his grisly career. I really hope the maximum sentence is until he dies. Uh, but I get the feeling it's not because it's the UK. It's very rare that someone gets sent away forever without the chance of ever getting out. Now, this story is very horrible and depressing, but I brought you here for closure, not some fresh... Nightmare fuel. So let's bring it all full circle. Could this killer, who was born in Glasgow and frequented the ballrooms of the city in the 1960s, be the man that we're looking for? You only need to take a look at the photos side by side to pique your curiosity. The oldest image available of Tobin, taken in his 20s, bears a striking resemblance to the photo fit of Bible John. Not completely the same, mind you, but these things rarely are. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be a perfect sketch. If it's the, the whole point is, it just should be close. There was another eerie echo of the Bible John murders in Tobin's crimes. His 18-year-old victim, Diana McNichol, had been hitchhiking back from a music festival with her killer. The friends was dropped off first, and McNichol, of course, was never seen again. The young guy later reported that during the trial, Tobin had told them he was teetotal and that he had a cousin who had scored a hole-in-one at golf. It was enough to draw the attention of criminologist Professor David Wilson, anyway, one of the UK's leading experts on serial killers and their motivations. Almost exactly 50 years after the first Bible John murder, he reported on his own independent investigation. As part of a three-year effort, Wilson traveled to Glasgow and retraced the steps of the killer, filling the dark alleyways of the city with all the grisly details with which he was intimately familiar. He noted how carefully the killer had managed the crime scenes to minimize evidence, and agreed with the police that he would have needed a lot of local knowledge to pull off without witnesses. There was clearly an element of pride to the killings, he thought. The way he had laid the bodies out plainly, without shame. The way he had beat their faces. The fact that he had expressed a hatred for married women who went out to find one-night stands. All of it suggested a sense of vindication, as if he felt he had dealt out the proper punishment for his victims' sins. As a Roman Catholic, Tobin had a clear interest in religion, and his decision to hide Clark's body inside the flooring of an actual church was probably his biggest, most self-satisfied act of symbolism. Several times throughout his life, he used religious groups as a cover to hide from the police. His attitudes to his conventional romances were also very warped and abusive, with all three of his ex-wives reporting that he started out as a charming, silver-tongued man at first, but after marriage, he became a sadist and a rapist who terrorized them in their own homes. In particular, his wrath was greatest when they were on their periods. Now all of these similarities are very, very intriguing, but what about some cold, hard dates to back up the story? Luckily those fall nicely into place too. Tobin lived in Shattleston, East Glasgow in 1968 and would leave the city for work regularly. His later crimes showed a habit of fleeing an area to avoid the heat and a pension for living under false names to avoid detection. In 1969 he moved to England and married his first wife. Where did they meet? Well, that was at the Barrowlands, of course. This is the guy, isn't it? (laughs) I was like the guy before who was buried underneath his mother, which is also weird, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But I thought he could be guilty. But this guy really lines up. And with that, I rest my case. Or Professor Wilson's case, I suppose I should say. I can't take much credit. When he asked an investigator close to the Tobin aftermath investigation why the police weren't ready to go public with the damning evidence, the reply basically amounted to a reluctance to reopen that old can of worms. Again, police, come on. I know it was a long time ago, but uh, there are jobs to be done. The ghost of Bible John is relatively quiet these days, living mostly in the minds of the elderly generation, so nobody wants to be the one to bring it fully back to life. Is that negligence? Honest doubt? Or maybe there just isn't enough hard and fast physical evidence to make the lengthy process worthwhile when police funds are already stretched as it is. Tobin himself isn't going to offer any answers, that's for sure. He has ignored every interview request from Professor Wilson, meaning our story is sadly lacking the climactic showdown, which would surely have Hollywood knocking on the door. But you're surely with me on this one, nonetheless, right? Yeah, I am, Callum, I am with you. I mean, if you're not convinced it was Tobin, I'll give you a million to our nods on The Suicidal Soldier or The Mystery Man in Amsterdam. It's your money to lose, although there is one other possibility, I suppose. Okay. You see, I, I mean, it could be Uh, Is this last one that there could be multiple people doing these crimes like they were plastered all over the papers so maybe someone is like a copycat killer or something. You see, I told you I was offering you closure, because that's what a story like this cries out for. If we can't have justice, if we can't have safety, we demand at least that much. A tidy explanation distills a formless fear, a suffocating mist which can expand to fill the streets of a whole city into something incomprehensible. Suddenly, the universal terror of your loved ones being harmed is reduced down to something more manageable, a sealed-off story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, one which you can file away, one step removed from everyday reality. There aren't always tidy answers to give, however. In this case, that's because the idea that all of the Bible John killings were committed by the same person is not accepted at all. Ah, I knew it. Some investigators and academics say that police were too quick to assume that that was the case, and that the first killing could have been totally unrelated, or the final two may have been copycat killings inspired by it. When the media gets hold of a story like this, it's really hard to tell apart fact from fiction. Perhaps the public Bible John mania warped the investigation itself and forced the police to give some easy answers which weren't entirely backed up by facts. At any rate, this still doesn't feel like a closed case. It's too deeply embedded in the psyche of Scotland to ever truly be closed. So I suppose the best we can take away from it is a warning to be wary and watchful for Bible Johns that walk among us. I know we like to take a lighter look at the dark side of crime here, folks, but in all seriousness, keep safe out there. Yes, I mean, I like to make these a little bit light-hearted, but we are always talking about horribly brutal murders, and often the people don't get caught. So, uh, yeah, you know, don't go home with any psychopaths, okay? <laughs> and if you see a stranger on a night out who might be in trouble, could you ever forgive yourself if you saw them in the news the next day? Keep that in mind, and you might well be a hero in the future, here on The Casual Criminalist, here's hoping. <laughs> Dismembered Appendices If you're grinding your teeth in frustration at Peter Tobin's reluctance to offer any information about his potential past victims, you're not alone. It is weird that he would say, yeah, I've killed like 48 people that when someone wants to talk about, he was boasting about it. When someone wants to talk about it with him, he's like, nope, not interested in talking about it. Come on. You're in prison forever. I mean, hopefully. In 2015, fellow inmate Sean Monahan slashed Tobin with an improvised shiv, frustrated with his refusal to reveal where the bodies were buried if they existed at all. The attack left a 20-centimeter laceration down his neck and face. I hope you'll enjoy me. I hope you'll join me in saying, ha, oh, too bad. <laughs> yeah. Number two, Chief Inspector Betty feels that the military connection was a key angle left underexplored due to manpower limitations. They did make sure to circulate the police sketch around every UK military base at home and abroad, however, Tobin had actually served a short stint in the French Foreign Legion before deserting. Number three. Finally, if you've ever felt like people on the street are staring at you, count yourself lucky—you're not this guy. One anonymous Glasgow man bore such a close resemblance to the Bible-drawn photo fit that the cops were called wherever he went, even though he had proved his alibi half a dozen times already. The police ended up making him a special for the last time. I'm not a murderer. Pass to save the trouble of booking him over and over. That's incredible. That's got it. That's so unfortunate. If you just happened, it'd be like if you just happened to look really a lot like Saddam Hussein. Or, you know, Adolf Hitler be like... I mean, Adolf Hitler, just don't grow the moustache and you'll be fine. But, yeah, that's really super unfortunate. This has been another long... This felt long, but uh, super interesting episode of The Casual Criminalist. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Callum for putting together the story for this one. And thank you for listening or watching, however you consume this. If you're watching, please do give us a like, subscribe. If you're listening, leave us a podcast review. That would be awesome. And, uh... See you next time!